Chapter Eleven of the Deluge, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Deluge, Volume Two by Heinrich Schenkewitz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter Eleven. Since the mountaineers gave sure information that on the road to Chorsten there was nothing to be heard of other Swedish parties, the retinue of the king turned toward the castle, and soon found themselves on the highway, along which the journey was easiest and least tiresome. They rode on amid songs of the mountaineers and shouts, The king is coming, the king is coming, and along the road new crowds of men joined them, armed with flails, scythes, forks, and guns so that young Casimir was soon at the head of a considerable division of men. Not trained, it is true, but ready at any moment to go with him even to Krakow and spill their blood for their sovereign. Near Chorsten, more than a thousand householders and half-wild shepherds surrounded the king. Then nobles from Novisanch and Sterisanch began to come in. They said that a Polish regiment, under command of Voynilovich, had defeated that morning just before the town of Novisanch, a considerable detachment of Swedes, of which almost all the men were either slain or drowned in the Kamiena or Dunayets. This turned out to be really the fact, when soon after on the road banners began to gleam, and Voynilovich himself came up with the regiment of the Vovoda of Bratslav. The king greeted with joy a celebrated and to him well-known knight, and amidst universal enthusiasm of the people and the army, he rode on toward Spidge. Meanwhile, men on horseback rushed with all breath to forewarn the marshal that the king was approaching, and to be ready to receive him. Joyous and noisy was the continuation of the journey. New crowds were added continually. The nuncio, who had left Silesia, filled with the fear for the king's fate and his own, and for whom the beginning of the journey had increased this fear, was beside himself now with delight, for he was certain that the future would surely bring victory to the king, and besides to the church over heretics. The bishop shared his joy. The lay dignitaries asserted that the whole people, from the Carpathians to the Baltic, would grasp their weapons as these crowds had done. Voynilovich stated that for the greater part this had taken place already, and he told what was to be heard in the country, what a terror had fallen upon the Swedes, how they dared go no longer outside fortifications in small numbers, how they were leaving the smaller castles which they burned, and taking refuge in the strongest. "'The Polish troops are beating their breasts with one hand, and are beginning to beat the Swedes with the other,' said he. "'Vilchkovsky, who commands the Hussar Regiment of your Royal Grace, has already thanked the Swedes for their service, and that in such fashion that he fell upon them at Zakijevo, under the command of Colonel Altenberg, and slew a large number, destroyed almost all. I, with the assistance of God, drove them out of Novisanch, and God gave a noted victory. I do not know whether one escaped alive. Pan Filetsyan Kohovsky, with the infantry of Navoy, helped me greatly, and so they received pay for those dragoons, at least whom they attacked two or three days ago. What dragoons? asked the king those whom your royal grace sent ahead from Silesia. The Swedes fell on these suddenly, and though not able to disperse them, for they defended themselves desperately, they inflicted considerable loss. And we were almost dying of despair, for we thought that your royal grace was among those men in your own person, and we feared lest some evil might happen to Majesty. God inspired your royal grace to send the dragoons ahead, 
the swedes heard of it at once and occupied the roads everywhere do you hear tyzenhaus asked the king an experienced soldier is talking i hear gracious lord answered the young magnate and what further what further tell on said the king turning to voinilovich what i know i shall surely not hide jigotsky and kulesha are active in great poland varshtitsky has driven lindorm from the castle of pilets dankov is defending itself lentz Corone is in our hands and in podlyasy sepieha is gaining every day at tykostsen the swedes are in greater straits at the castle and with them is failing the prince voveda of vilna as to the hetmans they have moved already from sandemir to lubilesk showing clearly that they are breaking with the enemy the voveda of chernigov is with them and from the region about is marching to them every living man who can hold a saber in his hand they say too that there is some kind of federation to be formed there against the swedes in which is the hand of sepieha as well as that of stefan charnyetsky is charnyetsky now in lubelsk he is your royal grace but he is here to-day and there to-morrow i have to join him but where to find him i know not there will be noise around him said the king you will need not inquire so i think too answered voinilovich in such conversation was the road passed meanwhile the sky had grown perfectly clear so that the azure was unspotted by even a small cloud the snow was glittering in the sunlight the mountains of spidge were extended gloriously and joyously before the travellers and nature itself seemed to smile on the king dear country said jan casimir god grant me strength to bring thee peace before my bones rest in thy earth they rode out on a lofty eminence from which the view was open and wide for beyond at the foot of it was spread a broad plain there they saw below and at a great distance as it were the movement of a human anthill the troops of the marshal cried voinilovich unless they are swedes said the king no gracious lords the swedes could not march from hungary from the south i see now the hussar flag in fact a forest of spears soon pushed out in the blue distance and colored streamers were quivering like flowers moved by the wind above these flags spear points were glittering like little flames the sun played on the armor and helmets the throngs of people accompanying the king gave forth a joyous shout which was heard at a distance for the mass of horses riders flags horse-tail standards and ensigns began to move more quickly evidently they were moving with all speed for the regiments became each moment more definite and increased in the eye with incomprehensible rapidity let us stay on this height we will await the marshal here said the king the retinue halted the men coming toward them moved still more rapidly at moments they were concealed from the eye by turns of the road or small hills and cliffs scattered along the plain but soon they appeared again like a serpent with a skin of splendid colors playing most beautifully at last they came within a quarter of a mile of the height and slackened their speed the eye could take them in perfectly and gain pleasure from them first advanced the hussar squadron of the marshal himself well armored and so imposing that any king might be proud of such troops only nobles of the mountains served in this squadron chosen men of equal size their armor was of bright squares inlaid with bronze gorgets with the image of the most holy lady of chenstohova round helmets with steel rims crests on the top and at the side wings of eagles and vultures on their shoulders tiger and leopard skins 
but on the officer's wolfskins according to custom. A forest of green and black streamers waved above them. In front rode Lieutenant Victor, after him a janissary band with bells, trumpets, drums, and pipes, then a wall of the breasts of horses and men clothed in iron. The king's heart opened at that lordly sight. Next to the hussars came a light regiment still more numerous, with drawn sabres in their hands and bows at their shoulders. Then three companies of Cossacks, in colors like blooming poppies, armed with spears and muskets. The next two hundred dragoons in red jackets, then escorts belonging to different personages visiting at Lubyavia, attendants dressed as if for a wedding, guards, haiduks, grooms, Hungarians, and janissaries, attached to the service of great lords. And all that changed in colors like a rainbow, and came on tumultuously, noisily, amid the neighing of horses, the clatter of armor, the thunder of kettle-drums, the roll of other drums, the blare of trumpets, and cry so loud that it seemed as though the snows would rush down from the mountains because of them. In the rear of the troops were to be seen closed and open carriages, in which evidently were riding dignitaries of the church and the world. The troops took position in two lines along the road, and between them appeared, on a horse white as milk, the marshal of the kingdom, Pan Yerzy Lubomirsky. He flew on like a whirlwind over that road, and behind him raced two equerries, glittering in gold. When he had ridden to the foot of the eminence, he sprang from his horse, and throwing the reins to one of the equerries, went on foot to the king standing above. He removed his cap, and placing it on the hilt of his sabre, advanced with uncovered head, leaning on a staff all set with pearls. He was dressed in Polish fashion, in military costume. On his breast was armor of silver plates, thickly inlaid at the edges with precious stones, and so polished that he seemed to be bearing the sun on his bosom. Over his left shoulder was hanging a cloak of Venetian velvet of dark color, passing into violet purple. It was fastened at the throat by a cord with a buckle of diamonds, and the whole cloak was embroidered with diamonds. In like manner a diamond was trembling in his cap, and these stones glittered like many-colored sparks around his whole person, and dazzled the eyes such was the brightness which came from them. He was a man in the vigor of life, of splendid form. His head was shaven around the temples, his forelock was rather thin, growing gray, and lay on his forehead in a shaggy tuft. His mustache, as black as the wing of a crow, drooped in fine points at both sides. His lofty forehead and Roman nose added to the beauty of his face, but the face was marred somewhat by cheeks that were too plump, and small eyes encircled with red lids. Great dignity, but also unparalleled pride and vanity were depicted on that face. You might easily divine that that magnate wished to turn to himself eternally the eyes of the whole commonwealth, nay, of all Europe, and such was the case in reality. Where Yerzy Lujabarmirsky could not hold the first place, where he could only share glory and merit with others, his wounded pride was ready to bar the way and corrupt and crush every endeavor, even when it was a question of saving the country. He was an adroit and fortunate leader, but even in this respect others surpassed him immeasurably, and in general his abilities, though uncommon, were not equal to his ambition and desire of distinction. Endless unrest therefore was boiling in his soul, whence was born that suspiciousness, that envy, which later on carried him so far that he became more destructive to the commonwealth than the terrible Yanush Radzivill. The black soul which dwelt in Prince Yanush was great also. It stopped before no man and no thing. Yanush wanted a crown, and he went towards it consciously over graves and the ruin of his country. Le Burmiski 
would not have taken a crown if the hands of the nobles had placed it on his head but having a smaller soul he dared not desire the crown openly and expressly radzivill was one of those men whom failure casts down to the level of criminals and success elevates to the greatness of demigods lubomirski was a mighty disturber who was always ready to ruin work for the salvation of the country in the name of his own offended pride and to build up nothing in place of it he did not even dare to raise himself he did not know how radzivill died the more guilty lubomirski the more harmful man but at that hour when in gold velvet and precious stones he stood in front of the king his pride was sufficiently satisfied for he was the first magnate to receive his own king on his own land he first took him under a species of guardianship he had to conduct him to a throne which had been overturned and to drive out the enemy from him the king and the country expected everything on him all eyes were turned therefore to show loyalty and service coincided with his self-love in fact flattered it he was ready in truth for sacrifices and devotion he was ready to exceed the measure even with the expressions of respect and loyalty when therefore he had ascended one half of that eminence on which the king was standing he took his cap from the sword hilt and began while bowing to sweep the snow with its diamond plume the king urged his horse somewhat toward the descent then halted to dismount for the greeting seeing this the marshal sprang forward to hold the stirrup with his worthy hands and at that moment grasping after his cloak he drew it from his shoulders and following the example of a certain english courtier threw it under the feet of the monarch the king touched to the heart opened his arms to the marshal and seized him like a brother in his embrace for a while neither was able to speak but at that exalted spectacle the army the nobles and the people roared in one voice and thousands of caps flew into the air all the guns muskets and blunderbusses sounded cannon from lubovia answered in a distant base till the mountains trembled all the echoes were roused and began to course around striking the dark walls of pine woods the cliffs and rocks and flew with the news to remoter mountains and cliffs lord marshal said the king we will thank you for the restoration of the kingdom gracious lord answered lubomirski my fortune my life my blood all i have i place at the feet of your royal grace vivat vivat johannes casimirus rex thundered the shouts may the king live our father cried the mountaineers meanwhile the gentlemen who were riding with the king surrounded the marshal but he did not leave the royal person after the first greetings the king mounted his horse again but the marshal not wishing to recognize bounds to his hospitality and honor to his guest seized the bridle and going himself on foot led the king through the lines of the army amid deafening shouts till they came to a gilded carriage drawn by eight dapple gray horses in this carriage Jan casimir took his seat together with vidon the nuncio of the pope the bishops and dignitaries took seats in succeeding carriages then they moved on slowly to lubovia the marshal rode at the window of the king's carriage splendid self-satisfied as if he were already proclaimed father of the country at both sides went a dense army singing songs thundering out in the following words cut the swedes cut with sharpened swords beat the swedes beat with strong sticks roll the swedes roll impale them on stakes torment the swedes torment and torture them as you can pound the swedes pound Put them out of their skins cut the swedes cut then there will be fewer drown the swedes drown if you are a good man unfortunately amidst the universal rejoicing and enthusiasm 
no one foresaw that later the same troops of Lubomirsky, after they had rebelled against their legal lord and king, would sing the same song, putting the French in place of the Swedes. But now it was far from such a state. In Lubolivia, the cannon were thundering in greeting, till the towers and battlements were covered with smoke, the bells were tolling as at a fire. At the part of the courtyard in which the king descended from the carriage, the porch and the steps were covered with scarlet cloth. In vases brought from Italy were burning perfumes of the East. The greater part of the treasures of the Lubomirskis, cabinets of gold and silver, carpets, mats, gobelin tapestry, woven wonderfully by Flemish hands, statues, clocks, cupboards, ornamented with precious stones, cabinets inlaid with mother-of-pearl and amber brought previously to Lubovia to preserve them from Swedish rapacity, were now arranged and hung up in display. They dazzled the eye and changed that castle into a kind of fairy residence, and the marshal had arranged all this luxury, worthy of a sultan, in this fashion of purpose to show the king that though he was returning as an exile without money, without troops, having scarcely a change of clothing, still he was a mighty lord, since he had servants so powerful, and as faithful as powerful. The king understood this intention, and his heart rose in gratitude. Every moment, therefore, he took the marshal by the shoulder, pressed his head, and thanked him. The nuncio, though accustomed to luxury, expressed his astonishment at what he beheld, and they heard him say to Count Apotigen that hitherto he had had no idea of the power of the king of Poland, and now saw that the previous defeats were merely a temporary reverse of fortune, which soon must be changed. At the feast, which followed a rest, the king sat on an elevation, and the marshal himself served him, permitting no one to take his place. At the right of the king sat the nuncio, at his left the prince primate, Leschensky. Farther on both sides dignitaries, lay and clerical, such as the bishops of Krakow, Poznan, Lvov, Lutsk, Premysl, Helm, the archdeacon of Krakow. Farther on keepers of the royal seal and vovedas, of whom eight had assembled, and Castilians and refrendaries of officers there were sitting at the feast, Volnilovich, Victor, Stabkovsky, and Baldwin Skirsky. In another hall a table was set for inferior nobles, and there were large barracks for peasants, for all had to be joyful on the day of the king's coming. At the tables there was no other conversation but touching the royal return, and the terrible adventures which had met them on the road, in which the hand of God had preserved the king. Jan Casimir himself described the battle in the pass, and praised the cavalier who had held back the first Swedish onset. "'And how is he?' asked he of the marshal. The physician does not leave him, and guarantees his life, and besides, maidens and ladies-in-waiting have taken him in care, and surely they will not let the soul go from the body, for the body is shapely and young," answered the marshal, joyously. "'Praise be to God!' cried the king. "'I heard from his lips something which I shall not repeat to you, for it seems to me that I heard incorrectly, or that he said it in delirium, but should it come true, you will be astonished.' "'If he has said nothing which might make your royal grace gloomy,' Nothing whatever of that nature, said the king. It has comforted us beyond measure, for it seems that even those whom we had reason to hold our greatest enemies are ready to spill their blood for us if need be. Gracious Lord, cried the marshal, the time of reform has come, but under this roof your royal grace is among persons who have never sinned even in thought against majesty. True, true, answered the king, and you, Lord Marshal, are in the first rank. I am a poor servant of your royal grace. At table the noise grew greater. 
gradually they began to speak of political combinations of aid from the emperor hitherto looked for in vain of tartar assistance and of the coming war with the swedes fresh rejoicing set in when the marshal stated that the envoy sent by him to the khan had returned just a couple of days before and reported that forty thousand of the horde were in readiness and perhaps even a hundred thousand as soon as the king would reach lvoff and conclude a treaty with the khan the same envoy had reported that the cossacks through fear of the tartars had returned to obedience you have thought of everything said the king in such fashion that we could not have thought it out better ourselves then he seized his glass and said to the health of our host and friend the marshal of the kingdom impossible gracious lord cried the marshal no man's health can be drunk here before the health of your royal grace all restrained their half-raised goblets but lubomirsky filled with delight perspiring beckoned to his chief butler at this sign the servants who were swarming through the hall rushed to pour out malvoisie again taken with gilded dippers from kegs of pure silver pleasure increased still more and all were waiting for the toast of the marshal the chief butler brought now two goblets of venetian crystal of such marvellous work that they might pass for the eighth wonder of the world the crystal bored and polished to thinness during whole years perhaps cast real diamond light on the setting great artists of italy had labored the base of each goblet was gold carved in small figures representing the entrance of a conqueror to the capital the conqueror rode in a chariot of gold on a street paved with pearls behind him followed captives with bound hands with them a king in a turban formed of one emerald farther followed legionnaires with eagles and ensigns more than fifty small figures found room on each base figures as high as a hazelnut but made so marvellously that the features of the faces and the feelings of each one could be distinguished the pride of the victors the grief of the vanquished the base was bound to the goblet with golden filigree fine as hair bent with wondrous art into grape leaves clusters and various flowers those filigree were wound around the crystal and joining at the top in one ring formed the edge of the goblet which was set with stones in seven colors the head butler gave one such goblet to the king and the other to the marshal both filled with malvoisie all rose from their seats the marshal raised the goblet and cried with all the voice in his breast vivat Ioannis casimiris rex vivat 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 at that moment the guns thundered again so that the walls of the castle were trembling the nobles feasting in the second hall came out with their goblets the marshal wished to make an oration but could not for his words were lost in the endless shouts vivat 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 such joy seized the marshal such ecstasy that wildness was gleaming in his eyes and emptying his goblet he shouted so that he was heard even in the universal tumult ego ultimus i am the last then he struck the priceless goblet on his own head with such force that the crystal sprang into a hundred fragments which fell with a rattle on the floor and the head of the magnate was covered with blood all were astonished and the king said lord marshal we regret not the goblet but the head which we value so greatly treasures and jewels are nothing to me cried the marshal when i have the honor of receiving your royal grace in my house viva Ioannis casimirus rex here the butler gave him another goblet vivat vivat shouted the guests without ceasing the sound of broken glass was mingled with the shout only the bishops did not follow the example of the marshal for their spiritual dignity forbade them the nuncio who did not know of that custom of breaking glasses on the head bent to the bishop of poznan sitting near him and said as god lives astonishment seizes me 
your treasury is empty and for one such goblet two good regiments of men might be equipped and maintained it is always so with us answered the bishop when desire rises in the heart there is no measure in anything and in fact the desire grew greater each moment toward the end of the feast a bright light struck the windows of the castle what is that asked the king gracious lord i beg you to the spectacle answered the marshal and tottering slightly he conducted the king to the window there a wonderful sight struck their eyes it was as clear in the court as when there is daylight a number of tens of pitch barrels cast a bright yellow gleam on the pavement cleared of snow and strewn with leaves of mountain fern here and there were burning tubs of brandy which cast blue light salt was sprinkled into some to make them burn red the spectacle began first knights cut off turkish heads tilted at a ring and at one another then the dogs of liptovo fought with a bear later a man from the hills a kind of mountain samson threw a millstone and caught it in the air midnight put an end to these amusements thus did the marshal declare himself though the swedes were still in the land end of chapter eleven